Welcome to Questions That Matter, a podcast of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I'm your host, Randy Newman. I'm delighted today to have as my conversation partner, Rebecca McLaughlin. Rebecca, welcome to Questions That Matter. It's great to be here, Randy. Uh, I should inform our listeners, uh, Rebecca has written uh, several really great books. Her first book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, uh, won the Book of the Year uh, Award for Christianity Today. Then she adapted it for a teen audience, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. She's written a new book called The Secular Creed. That's going to be the topic of our conversation today. But I want to uh, let our uh, listeners know about Rebecca's website, RebeccaMcLaughlin.org. She says right at the start of that, two things have always fascinated me, the power of words and the message of the gospel. I love exploring the message of Jesus with broken people, all of us, and I long to be part of the rediscovery of the Christian faith as an intellectual movement. Oh, how I I love that purpose statement. Um, It does need to be a rediscovery, doesn't it? Yeah, I think one of the the odd things that's happened over, I suppose, the last couple of centuries is this idea that Christianity is anti-intellectual or at least unconcerned with the life of the mind. And, And I see why we've got there. I think we've partly got there because we have been concerned to, to make clear that the gospel is is simple and accessible to a young child or somebody with a, a learning disability. It, it's not that the message, that the sort of fundamental message of Jesus is, is complex and sort of highfalutin. At the same time, the idea that Christianity doesn't have anything to offer when it comes to the hardest questions, the, the most rigorous intellectual pursuits, is to completely ignore both the words of scripture and the last 2000 years of Christian history. <laughs> and, uh, we, we sometimes act as if uh, you know, either of those things are, are permissible. Um, but I like to remember that Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and that he's not content with three out of four. Mm. Well, uh, you said that you long to be part of, I think you've given us some tools that are really very, very helpful. Uh, so I'm really grateful for that. And I want to talk about this recent book, The Secular Creed. The subtitle is Engaging Five Contemporary Claims. And and you're you're wanting to help think deeply to go past the slogans that are usually on those lawn signs or in the windows, uh, slogans like Black Lives Matter, Love is Love, the Gay Rights Movement is the New Civil Rights Movement, Women's Rights are Human Rights, transgender women are women. You go right after the really tough issues, but um, you explore them really well. Let, let's start with the title. Why Why did you call it a creed? Why is it the secular creed? Mm. Well, I don't know about your neighborhood, Randy, but where I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in, in the spiritual wilds of the Northeast, the yard signs that are common in this area begin, in this house we believe that, and then mm-hmm. there's a, a list of claims that usually starts Black Lives Matter, Love is Love, Women's Rights are Human Rights. And then there seem to be a sort of grab bag of two or three other statements that vary from sign to sign. It could be sort of science is real or water is life or kindness is everything or diversity makes us stronger. And so, so that sign itself positions those beliefs as a creed. You know, we, mm-hmm. uh, uh, we mm-hmm. believe, um, I, I don't think deliberately referencing 
the Christian tradition of, of creeds, you know, beginning, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, but actually playing a, a similar role of saying, okay, guys, these are the, the core tenets of our moral beliefs. Mm-hmm. And what I want to say in, in the book, or was attempting to say, is number one, that the the very soil in which those signs are planted, the sort of moral soil in which any of those claims has a chance of growing, is actually Christian soil. Mm-hmm. So all of those claims, it, whether or not we, we agree with them uh, from a Christian perspective, and, and the book tries to have a, a sensitive approach to, to which pieces of which claim we do and don't affirm, it's, it's not just a, a sort of straightforward yes or no in many cases. Um, actually, each of those those claims depends on what seem today to be self-evident moral truths, like all human beings are fundamentally morally equal, or like the the rich and the strong and the powerful don't have the right to trample on the poor and the weak and the marginalised, or that, that women are fundamentally equal in, in status to men, etc. And, and all of these things, as they seem like just basic moral common sense to us today, actually, if you look historically, are specifically Christian beliefs. So there's kind of an irony there about the 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 soil, so to speak, in which those those claims are planted, and then I think um, there's there's a real a danger for us as Christians to look at a sign like that and either think, okay, um, I know, for example, that the the history of of how you know, white evangelicals and I'd, I'd consider myself to be both white and evangelical um, have treated our, our black brothers and sisters. I know about the history of, of injustice, and I've been told that in order to affirm uh, the equality of, of black um, men and women, I must also affirm gay marriage for believers and transgender identities, etc. And so I'm sort of going to take that whole sign and, and hammer it into my own yard, either sort of literally or metaphorically. So you know, some Christians do that. On the other hand, there are Christians who look at a sign like that and say, okay, I know there are some things on that sign that the Bible doesn't affirm, and so I'm going to block my ears to all of it. Mm, I'm going to mm. kind of knock it, so to speak, like swing a mallet at it and knock it all down. And anytime somebody wants to, to come and talk to me about racial justice, for example, I'm going to block my ears because I know that that's all, you know, all of a piece with these other things that, that Christians can't affirm. And, and what I'm wanting to say in the book is actually, no, we need to look at each of these claims in the light of scripture. And we need to recognize first and foremost that as clearly as, as scripture points us away from gay marriage for believers, it actually points us towards racial equality and justice. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So so we've actually, these two things have got tangled up together and I, I've yeah. tried to look at how they've got tangled up and how we can detangle them as Christians. Yes, detangle is a good word. I think that's, uh, well, you use that illustration in one of your chapters too. Um, but you know, I, um, I I think the tremendous challenge is to try to get deeper than a slogan. Mm. Um, these things are slogans, and and you're right. I mean, it, it becomes even more of difficult. Of it's it's all of these slogans fit together, and you, you have to affirm all of them. By the way, you're you're right that they they vary in length. Some of them are longer and have more. I I saw one in a, a neighborhood nearby near me at a at a store. And it's, we believe, and it was mm. all of those things you said and all these other things. And it says, um, we affirm all beliefs. And I, I just stood yeah. there so puzzled for a while, like, all? I, 
I think there's a couple floating around in my head right now that they wouldn't affirm. I, I just, uh, it would, <laughs> we believe we affirm all beliefs. Mm. Uh, anyway, I uh, will save that for uh, Tylenol uh, <laughs> later. Um, you say early in your book, um, well, you just alluded to it. Some people want to take that sign and use a mallet and use it to put it, you know, to hammer it down into their lawn. And other people want to take a mallet and destroy it. You say, this book will offer a third approach, wielding a marker instead of a mallet. Tell, tell, it, tell us what, what you mean by that. Mm. The more that I have tried to understand about history, both, um, both in my country, I come from the UK in case folks hadn't figured that out at this point, um, and my sort of adoptive country, I'm married to a guy from Oklahoma, no less, and I've been living here for the last 13 years. And it seems to me that one of the, the most powerful arguments that people make today goes something like this. It says, just as you uh, white Christians tried to use your Bibles in the 60s to stand against you know, desegregation of schools um, and, and equal, like even basic equal rights for black Americans, so you're trying to use the Bible today to justify your homophobia and your, your refusal to acknowledge that love is love and to recognize um, marriage between people of the same sex. And it seems to me that until we recognize that the first half of that statement is true, we're going to have no moral legs on which to stand as we address the second. So until we're, we're ready to say, you know what, it is tragically, lamentably and undeniably true that many in our chart, I mean, you know, you and I, Randy, I'm guessing both of us would describe ourselves as evangelicals mm -hmm, and we're mm -hmm, evidently yep. both white. Um, unless we're willing to reckon with that, that reality, we don't have the moral legs to stand on today. But, but here's the irony. Uh, the, the problem with the 60s segregationists was not that they were too Christian. It was that they were not half Christian enough. It mm -hmm. wasn't that they were reading their Bibles too much. It was that they were actually completely ignoring what the Bible tells us about love across racial difference. Mm -hmm. And so the, the fix today, and this is where I want to talk about the marker, the fix today is not to not believe the Bible, just like those folks in the 60s did, but actually to get back to the Bible mm -hmm. and to see that there we have both very clear boundaries around sex and, and a clear vision for what marriage is, and, and especially that marriage is, is designed from a Christian perspective to illustrate Jesus's love for his church. It's, it's, I, I sometimes say to non-Christian friends, you know, what we Christians believe about sex is actually much weirder than you think. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's all about this metaphor of God's love for his people in the Old Testament, Jesus' love for his church in the new. That's why there is even such a thing as, as male and female and Christian marriage, as far as I can tell from the scriptures. Um, but at the, at the same time, we need to recognize that the scriptures call us to radical love across racial, cultural, ethnic, national boundaries. And the reason that we actually find it hard to see that often in the pages of the scriptures is because our, our boundaries are different from those of, of Jesus' contemporaries. So when we mm -hmm, hear mm -hmm. you know, the parable of the good Samaritan, if, if we have heard of Samaritans at all, we immediately associate them with being good, right? You know, yes. good Samaritan, that's, that's what comes to mind. But for Jesus' Jewish contemporaries, they were like the hated ethnic, cultural, religious enemies of the Jews. So um, we often just kind of miss the radical things that Jesus is saying because we haven't translated them into our 
more contemporary sort of cultural setting. Um, but but doing that work, it doesn't end, doesn't result in a sort of diluting the message. You know, sometimes people say, well, you have to understand the Bible, it's cultural context, by which they mean, I don't really want to face up to the hard things it's saying to me. I think actually the more we understand it properly and it's cultural and, and are real about how that translates to ours, the, the more vital and incisive Jesus' message is be for us today. Mm-hmm. We all know people who are going through difficult times, or if we don't, just give it some time, and sure enough, people we know will be going through difficult times. And when we hear that a friend is struggling, it can be easy to say, I'm praying for you, but it's a lot harder to know exactly what or how to actually pray. Uh, Nancy Guthrie has written a new book entitled, I'm Praying For You, 40 Days of Praying the Bible for Someone Who is Suffering. And it is a magnificent resource that opens up a wealth of scripture to teach us how to pray for those people who are struggling. Uh, It'll be January 21st at 8 p.m. live stream event. Uh, There's no charge for it, but we do need for you to register. So please go to our website and sign up and uh, we think it'll be really helpful. You know, I, 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 I loved your book in that you were deeply digging into the contemporary situation, what people are saying about these issues, and then also deeply looking at the scriptures. That section about the Good Samaritan, the scandal of the Good Samaritan, you really dug into that in, in a very, very helpful way. Um, yeah, where, where there was there was a theme woven in all of the separate chapters of your book. And by the way, it's a remarkably short book. So for those of you who are listening and thinking, wow, this she really digs deeply. She does, but she does it in 107 pages. So um, this is a very accessible book, uh, even though it digs deeply. But um, you, there's a, the theme, one of the themes tying the chapters together is that we, we need to be more biblical, not less mm. biblical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then that other theme that you've, you've alluded to, that all of these claims, Black Lives Matter, love is love, um, uh, they, have, they, they must have a Christian root, otherwise... Otherwise, no lives matter. I mean, if there is no God and we're not people creating the image of God, well, then nobody's life matters and nothing mm. matters. Mm. And you, you very, very quickly, you tell about um, the cartoon character that we've seen. The cartoon character runs off the cliff and then is sort of suspended in air for just a moment before. And then they realize, oh, no, I'm no longer on solid ground. And Doo, there they go. Um <laughs> Uh, but that is kind of where our culture is in many places. It, it, it's we've we've run off the cliff, but mm. and we're still hoping to be able to stay up and affirm things like people deserve respect. And um, but but I but I wonder if you have insight for us because I I think that that is absolutely true, and it's what Christians must come to understand, and non Christians need to wrestle with. But I find it a difficult point to make. I find that mm-hmm. I. I need to kind of come at it from several different angles, several different times, and have to resist <laughs> the temptation to pound the table and say, "Don't you see this? It's so <laughs> obvious." Um, so, do you have any you have any insight for us about? Ha- have you had some experiences where you've been able to get through? Yeah, it's funny when I was writing confronting Christianity uh, three years ago. I remember that except my. I guess three and a half years ago, I was pregnant with my my third child. So <laughs> Luke is confronting Christianity years old in my mind. 
Um, <laughs> I remember feeling a little bit daring for saying that really, if we pull Christianity out of the moral edifice, everything comes crashing down. Mm. It's a sort of thing where I was in that book. I wanted to spend a lot of time saying things that I knew that both um, Christian and atheist experts would agree on, as well as things that only Christians believe. But to sort of start with, hey, this is this is kind of the agreed common ground that whoever's looking at the evidence is going to say the same thing. I remember feeling, like I say, just a little bit daring, like I was slightly pushing the boat out, saying, I think all moral truth kind of crashes down if we if we sort of pull a creator god out of the picture um and especially if we pull christian ethics out a lot of things we, we think of as just yeah basic moral common sense fall crumble in our hands in between writing that book and writing the secular creed um i read a number of non-christian authors including uh, a guy called Tom Holland, who's a, a British um, historian, who wrote this amazing book called Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Mm, amazing He's looking book. back over sort of 2,000 years of, of Christian history in the West. And he um, you know, began that book very much um, not a Christian. Uh, it was always much more attracted to the Greek and Roman gods than to the sort of seemingly pathetic hero of Christianity. And by, by the end of the book, he'd come to the conclusion as I was just saying, that actually the the things we hold as self-evident moral truths are in fact specifically Christian beliefs. And that he, as a sort of agnostic, found that he had a lot of Christian beliefs that he just hadn't realized. Um, he's he's at least very close now to identifying as, as, as a Christian himself. Mm-hmm. And then another guy, you will know Harari, he wrote this um, massive sort of global bestseller, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind, where he, I think, you know, atheist, um, Israeli historian who is just very uh, stark in his statements um, when it comes to morality. He'll say things like, Homo sapiens have no natural rights, just as chimpanzees, hyenas, and spiders have no natural rights. And he says that um, the Americans got the idea of equality from Christianity, but when we stop believing in the myths about you know, God who, who created humans in his image, why would we keep believing these things? Sort of, mm-hmm. So when I read Tom Holland, it was almost like um, he was sort of lamenting these beliefs that he wished he could Round in Christianity, uh, when I read you all know Harari, it was like almost almost sort of flippant or mm-hmm. uh, yes. not really yeah. recognizing the, the full implications of, of what he was saying. But I, I guess when I'm talking with non-Christian friends, rather than saying, oh, you know, here's a here's a Christian author who's arguing that actually all our moral beliefs come from Christianity, which feels a little bit like the guy in um, then if you saw the film My Big Fat Greek Wedding, Wedding, the father uh-huh. who's like, tell me something and you know. Show me something and I'll tell you why it's Greek kind of yes, thing. I think sometimes yes. Christians can seem like that. You say, hey, you know, here are a couple of non-Christian historians who they themselves are saying, actually, Christianity gave us these beliefs. And, and without Christianity, we don't have that same foundation, which is, of course, a point that Nietzsche was making um, you know, back in the day. Uh, but that I, I think is it increasingly actually ev- evident to um, atheists and agnostic authors today who, who are very of honest and, and looking at history and philosophy. You know, I have, as you're talking, I'm thinking I've, I've had this ongoing friendship conversation with uh, a man who is now retired. Uh, he was a philosophy professor for many years at the university where I was doing campus ministry. And I wonder if he's read Sapiens or is, is at least familiar with it, because I think I want to say to him, like, what do you think about that? Because th- there is a, a, an intellectual coherence with this idea of, well, if there is no God, 
then there really is no basis for human rights and equality and all of these things that somehow feel innate in us. I wonder what he would say. So I'm going to ask him. I I need to try to ask it kindly. I mean, I think um, some of your arguments are so very, very helpful but but I'm I'm afraid some of us may use it as a mallet, like aha, gotcha. And the the challenge is to enter into real, compassionate and loving conversations with people. And and I think you model that very very well for us. Um, let me uh, let me ask this: who who did you write the book for? You know, the Circular Creed is the first and so far only book I've written primarily for Christians. Okay. It, I'd almost say primarily for um, my fellow white evangelicals, mm. um, because I think there are, are certain things that uh, are going to be more, you know, more intuitive to our brothers and sisters of, of color. Um, and I, I think what breaks my heart at the moment is that our historic, like, failure really to reckon with with our history of sin is sort of cutting our hands off right now. Um, I had a, a pastor friend reached out a couple of weeks ago to ask if I would write a book on, on deconstruction um, because he felt like, you know, there was a need for that and, and he'd read Confronting Christianity. He felt like, you know, I could be in a good position to do that. And The Secular Creed is kind of my book on deconstruction because hmm. hmm. I think what a lot of people are doing today is is coming to realizations about the history of, of, of Christian complicity and racial injustice and um, feeling like everything unravels when they recognize that. It's a little bit like I, I was talking with my, my daughters um, a couple of days ago, they're nine and 11, and we were talking about the problem of lying to your parents. Mm. And, and the biggest problem with lying to your parents, aside from the fact that it's sort of wrong, wrong to lie in general, is that if your parents don't believe that you're somebody who consistently tells them the truth, they won't be able to stand up for you when the teacher accuses you of something that you didn't do, for example. Mm. So uh, we were mm. saying to them, look, if you consistent, if we know that you are, you are consistently truthful and honest with us, we will go to bat for you anytime. If we know that actually you frequently lie to us about things you have or haven't done, we, we, we're not in a position to do that. And I think a lot of what's happening with deconstruction at the moment not saying it's all that's happening but i think a lot of what's happening is is christians realizing that they have grown up um with some lies in their bloodstream actually mm-hmm. um, they've been taught some lies about um when it comes to to christian complicity and racial justice or um and and when they sort of see that they think oh well now i can't trust anything um and, and i would love instead for us to get better at doing the two things that Christians should be really good at doing. And that's both repenting and believing. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I, I think sometimes we think, oh gosh, if we start to actually recognize and repent of sin, both in our own lives and in, and in our sort of broader ecosystems and historic tribes, then you know, we're somehow letting Jesus down. I think the opposite is, is true. Jesus always said that his followers would be you know, useless sinners and you read the New Testament letters to the churches, you can see that in evidence, right? Uh, it's, it should be no surprise to us that there's sin in our hearts, there's sin in our churches, there's sin in our history. But at the same time as repenting, we need to believe what the Bible says. And, and it takes as much biblical, sort of careful biblical editing and gym, gymnastics 
to make the Bible look like it aligns with racial segregation as it does to make the Bible look like it aligns with same-sex marriage. When we were young, uh, people would marvel at how we've grown if you hadn't seen them in a year and oh, how you've grown. Um, but can the same thing be said about spiritually as we're growing? Do people notice spiritual growth? Do we notice spiritual growth? We do think that there's some value in doing an annual spiritual checkup, and we've put together a resource on our website that has been very helpful to people, especially at this time of year, the beginning of the calendar year. So please check out www.cslewisinstitute.org slash ASC, as in annual spiritual checkup. And there are questions to ask and uh, things to look for that I think can be very helpful for you as you evaluate how you're doing in your spiritual growth. You know, um, you've touched on so many things here. Um, I, I love that you're going after, you're saying uh, Christians should be very good at repenting, ongoing, and believing. I think a lot of us think of repent and believe is just the entrance into Christianity. So we need to repent of our sin and we need to believe that Jesus died for it. Yes, yes. But repenting, ongoing repentance, living a life of repentance and believing together is is the call that that God is calling us to. And I, I, I often think about First um, John 1, 9. It's surrounded by ways not to deal with sin, denying it, denying our sin nature, denying that we committed a sin. But in the center, it's if we confess our sins, mm. he is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us. But and, and I I want I want us to see that as it's an ongoing lifestyle of confession of sin. Mm. Um, you know, for years um my wife and I were part of a church where um we didn't have a time of corporate confession. And it was very uplifting and, you know, just, you know, you always felt very positive. And for a whole host of reasons, we left and went to another church. And the very first week, there was a time of corporate confession. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, this is this is a novel thing. We haven't done this <clears throat> for several years. And they gave us about 30 seconds, you know, for silent prayer of confession. And then we were to read a written prayer uh, in the bulletin. And when, when the person up front started reading the prayer, I wanted to raise my hand and say, wait, I need more time. I'm out of practice. Could you, I, could you give me a couple of hours? Um, <laughs> but, but so I think your book does a very good job of calling us to both repenting and believing, still believing. So I, I think you've, you've identified why a lot of people do walk away. They see the failures of the church, the inconsistencies, and then they 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 throw the whole thing out. Um, uh, I'm wondering, do you, do you see your book as something to give to those uh, who have walked away and to say, hey, I uh, I wonder if this could be a route of us discovering and and coming back. Do mm. you see it as that kind of thing? Yeah, I, I would I would hope so. Um... I think one of the things that many Christians today who are wanting to hold on um, to their faith lack is a hopefulness about the future. Mm. And so on the one hand, I would say, yeah, I would hope it would be a helpful book for, for people who have sort of done some sort of process of deconstruction and then they're you know, either struggling to identify as Christians anymore or, or have you know, actually walked away. Um, my hope is that it's also 
would be helpful to, to folks who um, aren't considering you know, leaving the faith, mm. but mm-hmm. who feel like everything is sort of going to hell in a handcart. I, I think there's a strong narrative which says, you know, once upon a time, uh, America was a Christian country, and then, you know, the 60s, there was the sexual revolution, and um, abortion legalized across the country. And, you know, since then, we've had the gay rights movement and the transgender rights movement, and everything sort of unraveled before us. Uh, and that either Christians can be left with a sense of, you know, deep hopelessness about the future, because it's just going to keep unraveling, or with a sense of, gosh, we've got to batten down the hatches and fight back in a very aggressive, uh, sort of culture warsy way. And whereas it's, it's really hard to recognize, actually, before the 60s, there were massive moral problems, um, not, not least uh, segregation, and then you know, if you want to go further back, slavery, um, to where, honestly, you know, people say it's really hard to raise kids in today's sort of hostile environment, culturally hostile environment to Christianity. I find it much easier raising my kids today, even in you know Cambridge, Massachusetts public schools, than if I went back a hundred years and had to raise kids where I was saying to them, you know, you need to walk across the segregation lines. Mm. Like actually, I think that, I think that there was a more, in in some ways at least, a more hostile culture. I just didn't realise it. Um, and so, helping helping people think through those um, challenges in our past can be a really painful process. But I think it can actually result in a, in a more hopeful view of the future to say our job now is not to get back to some mythical past where there was Christian ethics across the board upheld. Our job is to build that future. Um, and I think I, I personally feel extremely hopeful about the church globally and, and also in America. Um, if we get back to the Bible, if we embrace the diversity that the Bible calls us to, if we hold firm to Christian sexual ethics, um, if we uh, hold to the uh, reality of male and female, um, which the transgender movement at the moment is in, in really tragic and painful ways um, seeking to under, undermine, um, but which is also sort of ironically finding itself in a big fight with traditional feminists um, yeah, yeah. Who, who want to say, you know what, um, women a woman is a, a biological female and women's rights are actually you know, very much in under real attack from some of the latest moves of the transgender rights movement. So th- there's a lot that's going on at the moment. I'm not saying it's an easy environment to be in, but it's one in which I think we Christians should have a lot of hope um, so long as we're willing to both repent and believe. Oh, that was that. Uh, that may be a, a perfect way for us to kind of bring this to a close. There's so much more to talk about and and the whole topic about transgender, which you address in the the fifth chapter, is so very important. But we would need another whole another whole <laughs> podcast to go after right. that. I I do I, I I really appreciate that in a number of places. What what we're trying to say to people is, listen, we don't want to just argue about this, and we don't want to just say that you're wrong, I'm right. It's we're we're very concerned about people. And if they believe some of these slogans, it's really going to harm them. Um, there are some things about the feminist movement that we as Christians can agree with, but there's some things, and you go, you address specifically about abortion. Um, this is terribly harmful for people and society, mm-hmm. but individual women in particular. And, and so we've got to find both the words and the tone, I think, of expressing mm. compassion. 
Um, let me read our, uh, from your last paragraph at the end of the book. And then if you want to add any more things, um, but I, I love the way you draw it together. You, you say, um, rather than shouting pro- progressives who seek love and justice down, let's call them in with a Jesus song, his song of good news for the historically oppressed, his song of love across racial and ethnic difference, his song that summons men and women, married and single, young and old, weak and strong, joyful and hurting, rich and destitute, into eternal love with him. I I think that's the that's the the banner under which we need to have these conversations mm-hmm. with our neighbors, whether they have that sign out in front of their their house or not. Um, and uh, I'm really grateful for the way you've uh, in, in encouraged us and equipped us for this task. So Thanks any so last much. thoughts you want to chime in before we uh, say goodbye? Yeah, only uh, I, I love what Peter says um, in, in First Peter. He says, always be willing, uh, ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. Do so with gentleness and respect. Mm-hmm. Yes. And holding on to to those two things gentleness and respect as we engage with non-believing friends it is so important and and we're not we're not being faithful to the lord if we don't do that it's very clear in his in his word that that's what we should do um and seeking lovingly with with gentleness respect patience concern um to share the, the truth with them um and and not the truth that we ourselves are righteous which is in fact the opposite of the gospel but the truth that Jesus is the only source of righteousness for any of us. Mm. Well said, well said. Well, I'm so very grateful for your ministry, your writing, um, uh, more books to come. May the Lord uh, bless you with strength for that. Uh, to our listeners, I really want to encourage you to, to get a hold of uh, Rebecca's books, plural, especially the Secular Creed, but, but uh, confronting Christianity. Um, and then also the adaptation for teens, uh, 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. These are really helpful resources to get us past the slogans. Um, so we'll put some of those uh, uh, links in the uh, show notes below. Um, and we hope that all of our resources at the C.S. Lewis Institute help you live this life out in, in our world today with all of the challenges but all of the promises that God also uh, gives us to strengthen us. May God bless you.